kindly remain standing if you're comfortably able to honor God's word. And it comes to us today from Romans chapter 11. And I'm going to be reading verses 25, not what's up on the screen. I'm reading verses 25 to the end. So you get to listen to the text, all right? This is going to be wonderful. Amy's looking at me like, this is not my fault. (laughs) Probably not. So then you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters. I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As, regard the, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. So they now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he might be merciful to all. Oh, the depths and of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For, the Lord ha- for, the, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Several times during this uh, sermon series, I've mentioned that this is most people's favorite chapter of Romans. I've never found anyone to say that Romans 9 to 11 is their favorite chapter in Romans. But I have rediscovered this week, in a new way, its beauty. Romans 9 to 11, these three chapters are, are usually taken together because Paul is answering a crucial question. He's answering the question, what about Israel? What about the Jews? What is, what is God doing with, with them? And so in some ways, we're reading other people's mail uh, in these sections. Romans 8, which we left last week, was that high point of praise when Paul talked about nothing being able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. It, it was a triumphant, wonderful section of scripture. Um, it was what I like to call the hallelujah chorus. If you think about Romans um, all the way through, that Romans 8 in the middle was the, the high water praise of hallelujah chorus. Some people think the hallelujah chorus in Handel's oratorio is at the end. They assume that it's at the very end. It's not. It's in the middle. There's still much to do. And today we see there are still many questions to be raised and answered. And we'll see this primary one today as we wrestle through these chapters. Let us pray. By your blessing, O God, may these words that are yours, that are eternal, that do not change, come to our hearts, the word that you would speak. And so we humbly ask now that we would be receptive, good hearers of your word. Amen. The Apostle Paul is passionate about people. He's passionate about their relationship with God. He's passionate about his own culture, the Jewish people. 
God's chosen people. He is concerned about their salvation. He has, in his own words, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for them because they have not welcomed Jesus, God's Messiah. So when it comes to this question about, well, what about the Jews? What about their salvation? All kinds of questions rise up, and Paul is going to attempt to answer them. Questions like, what happens when God's chosen people don't choose God? What happens when they fall down on the job and reject their calling? Does it mean that God's word has failed? Did God make a mistake by choosing Israel in the first place? Has unbelieving Israel messed up, has, have they messed up God's plan for salvation? Will God renege on his promises? Has God just simply had it with his people? Did God change his mind? The basic question, the, the embarrassing problem, simply put, is what about the Jews? And it's a question that Paul is in no hurry to answer. It takes three chapters. There is no simple answer to this. It is not easy to understand. This is not the most easy portion of the scriptures to understand. Paul in this section is going to address things like election, God choosing, predestination. Does God choose some and not others? Hard question deep question. It's a huge question. How do we know? How would we know? The Bible speaks about God choosing Israel. But then we ask, how does God's grace in Christ fit in with God choosing Israel for the Gentiles, for us? Now, I want to step back for a second and look at this passage of Scripture through another passage. I want to go back to the really early part, the beginning of the book of Genesis, right there in the beginning. You remember there were two brothers, Cain and Abel? Cain was born first, Abel was born second, Cain the oldest, Abel the youngest, Cain the farmer, Abel the shepherd. The word Cain means acquire or create, the word Abel means nothing or miss. They were brothers. They grew up in the same place, same parents. They went to the same church, used the same altar. They both brought the work of their hands as an offering to God. One was accepted by God. One wasn't. Sometimes we just read over this. Think about this. These two brothers, in this specific case, God chose one not the other. Surprisingly, perhaps, it was the oldest brother, Cain, the inheritor of the far family farm, the patriarch, whose gift was not accepted. His little brother was the one who maybe we might say bested him. Or we might even say God was more pleased with the younger. Now, this story in Genesis is enough, tells us enough to be interesting but not enough to be easy. What was wrong with Cain's offering? He brought an offering. What was wrong? Why wasn't he chosen? Why wasn't it accepted? Was it something with Cain himself? <coughs> Why didn't he get God's approval? 
Now, commentators have wrestled with this from the beginning of time. They, they, they struggle with this. How could God choose one and not the other? And it's hard. It's a mystery. Some people, some commentators like Calvin, they don't like this uncertainty. And they suggest, well, Cain's offering was a fruit of the ground while Abel's brought, Abel brought the firstlings of his flock. Perhaps another way to put it is like this. Cain brought the Lord something out of his abundance. Abel brought the first that he had. But the text doesn't really tell us that's the answer. To be honest, we don't know. In fact, in no place in Scripture does the text explain why he accepts one offering and rejects the other. It's intentionally left a mystery. So, in essence, what God is saying to Cain is, Cain, you have a choice. You can continue to obsess over Abel's relationship with me, or you can start cultivating your own relationship with me. That's his choice. And we know what Cain's choice was. <laughs> he got really, really angry. He got angry at not supposedly being accepted, and he ended up killing his brother Abel. And yet we have this mystery right in the middle of this story, right at the beginning of the foundations of the Bible. It's as if at the beginning we need to understand and be told that God is free. God is free to do what God will do. God is free to choose and he's free to reject. We may not know why. And if you're like me, this is not the easiest proposition. This can be a little uncertain and scary even, that God is free to do what God wants to do and will do. We have limited understanding. Humans, we do. And when we have limited understanding, when we think about this God and choosing and not choosing, sin is right there and it can lead to envy and greed. And in our story, this story, sibling rivalry, Part of the question that comes out of the text is, are we going to obsess over who is chosen and who isn't? Or are we going to receive it and cultivate the relationship that God is offering us in Christ? So let's go back to our text. Let's go back to what Paul is doing here in Romans 9 through 11. What about Israel? They were supposedly chosen. What's happened to them? Will they ultimately be saved? Didn't God make promises to Israel? That's the question here. And that brings us to Romans 11. At the end of this argument that he's been making throughout this, Paul says, so that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. Don't you, did you hear that? I love this. I want you to understand a mystery. Isn't this an oxymoron? I want you to understand something that I can't figure out myself. I'm going to explain something that at the end of the day i got to throw my hands, but I want you to understand it. Paul is all twisted up here, and it's vulnerable, and I think it's honest, and it's wonderful. And what really, here's a way to say it. I want to lay all this out on the table as clearly as I can, friends. It's complicated. That's what Paul's saying here at the end of Romans 11. Now think about that for a minute. Paul is using the word mystery. It's complicated. I don't understand it all. I don't know. But remember back in chapter 8 where we left off last week? Paul said, I am absolutely convinced. 
I am absolutely convinced that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Paul says, certain, absolutely, this, 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 this I know. And then the question comes up, well, what about the Jews and what about chosen and all these things like election? And Paul says, mystery, mystery, I don't know. Because God is free to do what God's going to do. And God chooses, God elects, God saves, we do not. We struggle with all of this. We want certainty, right? Boy, uncertainty is hard. We want to know. We want to know that it's this and it's cut and dry and God will do this and God will act this way. Um, we want to know who he will choose and we want to be able to name that. But Paul, in another place in Scripture, says we see through a glass dimly. The mysteries of God are mysteries. We're never going to understand everything. We've got to walk humbly and admit that we don't know and we don't have it all figured out. Because the desire to have certainty or formula leads to a lot of bad places, a lot of bad circumstances. It's much better to admit and say, I don't know everything. I don't fully have God figured out and walk in humility and say, you know what? Christ's love for me is enough for today. There's a um, documentary show on TV that Amy's going to put this up. Yeah. Um, I don't know if some of you have seen this, but it's called it's on Amazon. It's running right now. Shiny Happy People. It's about the Duggar family. And a while back, there was a TV show called 19 and Counting. The Duggars had 19, have 19 kids. And this was a reality show that aired a few years ago. Uh, it was a big hit with certain members of my household. I didn't watch it, but other members of our house loved the show, 19 and counting. Uh, and now this documentary is going back and actually asking some really hard questions about that family. They were a very fundamentalistic, conservative Baptist family that got into a, uh, were led by a Baptist leader named Bill Gothard, who was really big in the 70s and 80s. It was... Um, he would have stadium tours, and he had a system um, about how to raise families and about how to live in this world. And it was based on power, and it was based on authority and really strict, tight rules, as if a way to say, if you raise your household this way, you will have certainty. Um, you will have results. You will have outcome. And the way it was structured, Bill Gothard, the way it was structured was, he had an umbrella, and it was God's umbrella of protection. And so this was for every house. And so God was above, obviously, or Jesus, we might say. Below that was the husband, and the husband was supposed to obey God. And then the wife had to obey the husband, and the children had to obey the wife. And this was what was called the divine order. Now, the reason why this was important to them was because if you followed this, they would say, if the husband had all the power and authority, and if everyone obeyed the husband, the father, then everything would be harmonious and go well, right? And then with that umbrella, Satan would not be able to enter in, enter in. And then you would be protected. This was the, I think, but it was based upon power and the, and the father, the husband, having all the authority in the household. Now, lots of problems with this. 
lots of really big problems. One is, for anyone to say that you can work out a system so where Satan won't be able to get in is absolutely false. We learned this three weeks ago, right? Remember what Paul said? Paul said, I do the thing I don't want to do. I don't want to do the Paul is saying evil ri resides in my heart, and I wish it didn't. You can't develop a system to protect yourself from that. It lives in the human heart. The other big problem with this is, sorry fathers, sorry dads, we're fallible, right? We are. Authority should not rest in one person. In our families, we need dads who are humble, who show weakness, who admit mistakes, who ask for help. Parenting should be a humble enterprise where two work together and say, let's discuss, let's think about it. We're, we don't have all the answers. We don't allow power and authority to rest with one person because we don't trust ourselves. This is all a system to try and create some certainty living under the care of a God who sometimes we don't know how he operates. David French wrote a um, editorial. He had touches to this. He wrote this this week, and he had this quote. He said, the quest for certainty and control can tempt people out of every faith, uh, every faith and no faith. In religious circles, it can manifest itself in ways that look strange to secular eyes. But I've seen people from all walks of American life and all ideological perspectives fall for gurus and fads. Life is hard, and we want answers, even perhaps especially where answers are impossible to find. We crave control, and when attempts to establish control, so destruction in our loved ones, even when attempts so destruction in our loved ones' lives. Things did not work well for the Duggard family. There was a whole lot of complications. It's ended in a lot of tragedy. A whole lot of tragedy. Friends, we need to allow God to be God. And we need to live under the uncertainty of not knowing everything. What God is doing. Let his purposes play out. Walk humbly. Admit mistakes. Say, we don't know exactly what God is doing here. And I love that Paul models this for us. He, not only did he model his own sinfulness and he exposed his own frailty, but at times Paul says, I don't know. I'm going to talk about a mystery here. The holy God of Israel, the holy God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will act the way he's going to act. All the while remembering what Paul said, I'm absolutely convinced nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Which gets us back to this problem because Israel has stumbled and they've rejected the Messiah. But are they able to get back up again? No, Paul says by no means. Um, and what we begin to see is that Paul is unwilling to write them off for one main reason. God's promises are irreversible, he says in verse 29. He says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Even when Israel is faithless, God remains faithful. Why? Because a promise is a promise, and a promise is permanent. It means apparently that Israel's rejection 
of its destiny may only be temporary. It means in the end, God's sovereign purpose cannot be frustrated. In fact, God actually uses Israel's rejection to then open God's grace to the Gentiles, to us. It means God does not have to reject those who reject himself. That's the divine prerogative. It's called mercy. And Paul says, I don't understand it. How can God have mercy on people who reject him? That's a mystery. What we do know is that God is merciful. We know his character. God has a plan. God keeps promises. And our job isn't to know or to dictate all of that, but to live out of that humbling mercy. Our job is never to say they are chosen, they are in, they are not, ever. That, it's a way of controlling God. It's a way of saying, God, this is the way you will operate. That's what Paul's wrestling with here. I know that God's made these promises and he keeps promises, but my evidence says they've rejected him. Then he falls back on, but God is merciful. Let's trust him. You see, from our perspective, divine providence and human free will look like two rails of a train track which will never meet. However, in the last verses of chapter 11, they make it clear that there is a point in the distance beyond human knowing, where these parallel tracks will actually converge. Listen to what Paul says at the end. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory and glory forever. Three chapters in Romans of intense questions. Three chapters of sustained argument. Three chapters of impassioned theologizing. And where do we end up? We end up, and Paul exclaims this in all beauty and wonder, we end up with an awesome, all-knowing God. Who, who is God's advisor? Who's going to consult or tell God what to do? No one. To whom does God owe anything? No one. Of this, Paul is most certain. We may not fully understand it all, but God's got everything covered. So are we going to obsess over who's chosen and who isn't? Or are we going to cultivate the relationship that's being offered to us in Christ? James Houston is a... Um, theologian, and he's well into his 90s. He's still living. He was at Regent um, College in Vancouver, um, theo theologian of spiritual theology. And here's a really cool thing. When he was young, he was mentored by C.S. Lewis. That tells you how old he is. Can anything more cool be said about anyone? He was mentored by C.S. Lewis, and he's still alive. Um, he was interviewed not long ago, a few years ago. Um, and I read this interview. And during the interview, his wife, Rita, was sitting by his side. And she was suffering from Alzheimer's. They write this, the sun was setting, we were about to leave. James and Rita sat side by side on the couch while we listened intently to James talking about living in weakness. And our final question was only meant to put a period at the end of a profound couple of days with the Houstons. But the answer took us off guard. 
we ask him, where have you learned most significantly that strength really does come from weakness? Strength does not come, friends, from having certain knowledge or power, like this system with the umbrella, like Cain thought about how things ought to go. Strength doesn't come from wisdom or certainty. Strength comes from knowing that we are weak and receiving the love that Christ has for us. So they ask him this question, where have you seen this weakness? And he leaned forward to answer. And Rita, sitting next to him, muttered under her breath, I could tell you after a few years. She said, we sat silently knowing that this disease, this Alzheimer's, was the great trial of her life. But then James inserted his own thought. You see, he said, looking over at his bride, Rita. Worried. Rita is worried. She's worried that as she loses her memory, she will forget Jesus. James glanced at us but continued to speak directly to her. So I remind her, what matters is not that you remember him, but that he remembers you. What about the Jews? What about Israel? What matters most is not that you and I remember him. He remembers us. He keeps promises. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, as we travel through Romans, we see the... We're reminded of the beautiful glory that you've prepared for your world. We confess that we don't understand how it all works and how it all will work. But like Paul, we read and we see and we understand that your mercy is bigger than we ever could assume. So help us to be humble, admit our weakness, admit that we don't have all the answers and we're never going to find certainty but open us up to receive the love that you died to give to us, each and every one of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.